another week and another episode. And we're already into the second month of the year with February. Well, where does all that time go? Matthew Grant here, partner at Instec. And welcome back if you've joined us before. It's really good to know we're doing something right if you're coming back for more. And of course, if this is your first time, then I am delighted you found us wherever you are or whatever you listen to. Now, one of the frustrations of hosting a podcast is that there's no way of telling who the audience is. That's you, other than those of you who are kind enough to tell us. But Simon, who runs our marketing, has been digging around and discovered that although we don't know who you are, Spotify, which is where 11% apparently of you are listening from, has revealed your top favorite artists to us. And they are The Weeknd, Ed Sheeran, Drake, Adele, and Kane West. Well, a couple of new names in there for me, so I look forward to downloading those at The Weeknd and see what your recommendations are. But this week, I am talking to a couple of good friends of Instec, Ruth Foxblader and Matt Jones from the venture capital investor Anthemis. Now, Anthemis is investing strongly in insurtech companies as well as other areas. And as you come to expect from us, we fit a lot into this episode. Topics we cover include what the performance of companies that have gone through an IPO or SPAC means for investment appetite for InsureTech generally. We're also going to look at what types of organizations are attracting the eyes of investors today and how does that compare to what people were looking at five years ago. Regulation, I discover, can be exciting and we have a crack at tackling this problem of diversity to see what can be done to bring more diversity by age, gender, experience and geography into startups and investors themselves. Well, look out for the audible bullet points where we're going into the details and as usual, I'll be interrupting and pausing the recording in a few places to reflect on what is being said. As always, if you like what you're hearing, then please do forward on a link to the podcast to others you think might find it useful. You can get the transcript from the podcast page on London, and you can review there what we've been saying in more detail. Finally, if you're not already one of our 150 member companies in insurance or technology and you're trying to figure out what really is going on in innovation in insurance, and wondering who you should talk to, then please do give me a call or contact me, Matthew Grant on LinkedIn, or any of us, hello, at instec.london. See if we can help ease your pain. Now, I'd hit the record button early for this one, and inspired by the musical theme earlier on and some of the best tracks out there, I'm kicking this off with some studio chatter. Morning, Matthew. Hey, Matthew. How you doing? Good, thanks. Morning, Ruth. Good morning. Is this edited or is it one take? No, of course it's all edited. Um, okay. So wait, no. <laughs> you can yeah. leave some of the stuff on the cutting room floor. It's cool. If you and can is, see it, is it ma- marked explicit? Is it if we swear? Is that? Yeah, definitely. We like those ones. We're going to do our best for you. Good. Okay. Here we go. Ruth, Matt, great to have you. You are both previous guests in different iterations on the podcast and extremely well known. Certainly the people who I know all seem to know you and respect what you've got to talk about. So uh, I know we've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to have to cram it into uh, 30 or 45 minutes. Let's see how we get on. A quick bit of background. So Ruth, you're a partner. Matt, you're a managing director at Anthemis as a venture capital investor. I'm sure you can tell us a bit more about it. I counted, not individually, but as a rough guess, I think there's about over 130 current or former companies you've invested in on the website. Uh, so that's my view of what you are. Uh, I guess, Ruth, turn to you first. Anything I've missed out on that that we should make sure we get in here? Yeah, just one quick thing. So Anthemis was actually founded um, more than a decade ago. So uh, 
sort of before the the term fintech was uh, commonly used and and certainly before the term insurtech was commonly used. But um, yeah, absolutely. We focus on um, financial services broadly and uh, specifically on insurance and risk management. Good. Well, I've got a question for both of you. We're all commonly talking about insurtech. I think it's pretty well known. Anybody's ever heard me talk before that it's a term I try and be very careful to use because it either means everything or it means something very specific. I noticed doing a search on your website that the word insurtech doesn't turn up at all. Could one of you just explain how you describe the companies you're looking at for your portfolio in terms of you know, what do they cover and what is the, the common noun that we should use to describe those as we talk about them? Yeah, of course. I think insurtech is probably as serviceable a noun as any. Um, I can give you a sense of what what it really means to us. I think that um, if you think about the way that we invest and the way Anthemis has invested, uh, it really boils down to this concept of embedded finance. And, and what that means is that the financial system is is the nervous system of society. And so we tend to find financial products and services and opportunities um, and specifically insurance opportunities in many different industry verticals. And so we will look at health and mobility and supply chain and logistics and all manner of different interesting verticals where insurance applications are relevant, as well as horizontal technologies, which are relevant for the insurance industry. And so I agree with you. I think that this catch-all term insurtech um, can certainly be quite broad. Um, and for us, it is. One of the really interesting things in the last few years has been organizations of all sizes coming in from outside of insurance, providing both data and distribution. So yeah, it is really good to see you've got that fairly open view as to what you can bring in. There's loads of things we could talk about rather than me prescribe what we're going to discuss. What, what would you say just now, the three, I don't want to say most important things because that puts a bit of pressure, but the three things you'd like to talk about today. A couple of things on my mind and on the mind of a few folks um, from the insurance industry and the investors that I've polled uh, as I've done a couple of catch-ups so far this year. Everybody's really thinking about the macro picture, um, what's happening in the financial markets, what's going to happen with interest rates and inflation, and specifically, what does the public market's performance of these insure techs, more traditional insure techs, mean for, for private market companies? Um, that's certainly one of the things that's on my mind. I guess relatedly, um, we really love new and interesting technologies and solutions. So there are sort of compulsory existing insurance products, um, and there have been some fantastic companies and some interesting companies founded to address those. We also really love um, novel and exotic insurance opportunities. And so we could talk about what that means to us. And then I guess kind of perennially sad topic for me is is why we see so few female entrepreneurs uh, in insure tech and you know, what we as an industry can do about that. Okay, well, let's not end on that sad topic because uh, there's enough doom and gloom around. So we'll make sure we try and end on a more positive topic, but it's something very important to talk about. So talking about women entrepreneurs and uh, I'm kind of intrigued by the novel and exotic new technologies out there that should definitely give us a bit of excitement. And then the one you started off with what's happening to the public traded in short techs and what does that mean for the rest of the world? So if I get too carried away on something else we're talking about and and don't come back to those Ruth, please do remind me before we before we wrap up. Uh Matt, what about you? What is what's top of mind for you just now? 
this year's a, a really interesting inflection point for the for this space. So I'm really interested in, in kind of looking back over the last few years, how it's been going and what's coming up this year in particular. You know, going back to one of the key themes at Anthem is, you know, the evolution of embedded insurance and its current direction of travel. Um, you know, I think it's probably the most used term um, at the moment. And then something else that's on my mind, um, which is why do we have no full stack insurance companies, insurtech businesses in the UK? What, what, what is what is it about our, about our country that's not getting this right? I don't I don't get it. So would love to, to talk about that a little bit more as well. Good. And just for the, the non-technical out there, those not familiar with that word, full stack is basically a, an organization that provides everything from distribution or contact to the client all the way through to the capital at right. the, back, the back end. Excellent. Matt, I do want to come back to you, first of all, and uh, just pick up on something you said on our recent predictions event, which is actually proving very popular. We're kind of watching the, the downloads just now between that event, Matt, that you were on and Ruth's podcast we did about 18 months ago to see who's going to get the most downloads. Um, we won't reveal who's in the lead right now, but uh, definitely proving very popular. Um, and just a quote back to you. I just wanted to tell you what you said, uh, and then just if you can unpack this a little bit, which I think links back to some of your themes. So you said the boom in investment over the last year has in large part been driven by generalist investors who've realized that insurance is a particularly challenging space to do well in. You expect that some of that's going to go to the sidelines going ahead. I think it's fairly clear what you're saying there, but perhaps you could explain why you're saying that, and that might also link to some of the inflection in terms of what's happening in this space. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that we did that before the Christmas sherry was opened. That, it, sounded, it sounded coherent. Maybe you edited that um, to, to make it sound a bit better. Um, so I think folks sometimes laugh when I say this, but there's been a lot that has been funded in the insure tech space that probably shouldn't have been. Um, over the last few years. And the, if we take a step back and think about the kind of venture investing community, you've got three, broadly speaking, three kind of cohorts of investors. You've got the specialists. So the folks that really spend, you know, all day, every day or near enough on the insurance industry. You've got the, those one step removed, which are the kind of fintech investors who might spend Tuesday mornings and Thursday afternoons digging into insurance, but that's, you know, they're also spending time on payments and banking and so on and so on. And then the third category is the generalist investors who spend, who will look at absolutely everything as it relates to technology. And we'll be looking at the metaverse on, on, you know, on Monday and then, you know, something else entirely. And maybe insurance sneaks in between three and four on a Friday before going home. Okay, this is quite important. So let's just review what Matt said. So broadly, there are three types of organizations making investments into this space. The first are the specialists, and they're focusing entirely on companies that are working with or, in fact, want to be insurers. The second is that broader category of fintech investors who may spend a few hours a week looking at investments related to insurance, but it's not the only thing they're doing. And then finally, the generalists who will look at practically everything. Got that? Okay, so where does Anthemus fit in? The specialist investors, and, and you know, I would put us into into this category. You know, we are you know here for the long haul, and we can and will weather the storm and and kind of the ups and downs of what's happening in the in the public markets. But the truth is that if you look at all of the money that's kind of gone into insurtech over the last few years, we can't do all that on our own as a specialist investors. You need these broader generalist investors with the much, much bigger funds to come in and back these companies. And so 
I think what we've realized is, and, and I think what a lot of generalist investors acknowledge, is that there wasn't really an appreciation in some ways of the complexity of the insurance industry. It's an industry full of nuances, just, just like any other industry, don't get me wrong. These kind of nuances are why certain things have persisted over time, things like intermediate distribution, certain ways of underwriting, even whole institutions like Lloyd's. Yesterday, there was some data published by Andrew Johnston, now Gallagher. They published the full year numbers for InsurTech and it came to $15.8 billion, um, 5.3 in the, in the fourth quarter. Now, there's no way, as I said, that this amount of funding can happen with just the specialist investors. It's great for the overall ecosystem because more ideas get funded, more entrepreneurs are attracted to the space. But now what we're seeing in the public markets is this kind of investors turning away a little bit. And that filters through to the venture ecosystem. And the first folks, I think, that are going to notice that and that are going to react to that are the generalist investors that have played such a prominent role in this kind of up and to the right um, kind of curve when it comes to, to venture funding. And I'm going to ask this question, and I know you're not going to give me the answer, but maybe you will. Which of those companies that had decent or big chunks of investment shouldn't have been invested in? Uh, yeah, you're right. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Should have you... asked me. No, I'm just kidding. Had we breached open the sherry at 11 o'clock in the morning, we might have had a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> For the private after hours discussion, I think. Uh, well, anyway, Ruth, that's a good link back to you, who I know, as you said, is also not going to reveal anything. But uh, yeah, so probably for those that haven't been tracking it so closely, could you just give a little bit of an overview to what is happening in the public markets for those companies that have gone through IPOs or, or use their uh, special purpose acquisition companies or their SPACs? And, and then their, what is, to Matt's point, what does that mean for more broadly the views of people you know, about the validity of investing in companies? Yeah, I guess so. If we turn the dial back to 2020, we saw a bunch of um, these early kind of first uh, wave insure tech companies go public, either via IPO or by SPAC. And today, none of those companies is trading above its IPO price. So, you know, that's very disappointing, to say the least. Um, and I think a couple of things have happened Um that 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 explain this, you know, one is sort of the fundamentals of those businesses when they're stacked up next to uh, a bunch of other public markets opportunities aren't, you know, proving to be as interesting as as maybe um, they did when they were um, the sort of highest funded, fastest growth private markets companies attacking uh, the insurance industry. And I think that this is one of those places where people in the industry will sort of pronounce InsureTech dead. I agree with, with everything that Matt said, actually, but, you know, there will be generalist private market investors who decide to take a little bit of a break um, from InsureTech uh, because of these, these poor performances and probably will do a lot more education um, and educate themselves and hire analysts who educate themselves to more deeply understand the right questions to ask and so that they can more deeply understand the fundamentals of um, a sustainable insurance business. Um, but I think that ultimately the insights that drew the entrepreneurial community and then the investment, the private market investment community, the VC community to insurance are stable and do exist. Okay, well, that's good news for everyone, investors and entrepreneurs. 
don't give up on insure tech, or at least not just yet. But as Ruth does go on to explain, building upon her earlier point about education, the focus is changing and finding the right solutions does take some work. So a quick plug for us at Instec here. If you're one of those people, and I hope that's all of you, looking to get educated or want to point someone else you know to some deep insights and research, well, we've been out there and done that for you. So take a look at our website. Got over 70 events, eight reports, three newsletters, and weekly articles as well, of course, all the podcasts. Okay, break over, back to Ruth. So we do use a tremendous amount of legacy technology There's a tremendous amount of inefficiency, a tremendous amount of customer dissatisfaction. Um, There's still so much work to do in the insurance industry. You know, there are massive um, coverage gaps. Uh, There are a number of products that don't exist that can exist thanks to new sources of data. There are some brand new risks out there. And so I think it's very easy to pronounce things dead um, when, you know, you have a couple of uh, disappointing outcomes or, you know, a disappointing period in, in something which is as visible as the public markets. Um, but I think that it would be, um, you know, woefully misguided to pronounce innovation and insurance dead and to pronounce insure tech dead. I think that we're going to see a new wave of companies, which is, um, much more, uh, fundamentally strong and sound, um, with expert, you know, entrepreneurs who deeply understand the fundamentals of the insurance industry. And we're just going to continue to see technology evolution that allows us to build um, more interesting companies over time. So um, I would I would say that for me, the lesson is there's been a lot of cheap money chasing all kinds of different opportunities. And some of those have proven um, temporarily disappointing. I think we're still in early innings and we're about to see some really interesting stuff this year. Yeah, I mean, it's often the case, isn't it? If you've got the pioneers, they say the pioneers are the ones that get the arrows in their bodies. Um, and you go back to the, you know, back over decades, I think Google was the, the 10th search engine out there. It's not always the companies that come to the market first. And the, I think also implicit in what you said in there, or maybe explicit, in some, there'll be a shift in terms of what we're seeing coming to market in terms of what companies are offering than what we might have seen beforehand. I want to come back on one thing you said on that technology, but first of all, when you look at as investors at what the the exit would be for the companies you're investing in, do you still predominantly look to public markets for an IPO as an exit, or is it also yeah an attractive option for a, a trade sale or some other kind of acquisition rather than going through the IPO route? So for the exceptional venture capital uh, opportunities, you know that we would seek to back. We would really want to believe that a company can go public, that it has um, that kind of staying power, scale and attractiveness. When you're talking about technology. So what is the balance when you look at the companies in your portfolio, or your sort of focus between the what you uh, described as the novel and exotic you know, new new concepts, new lines of business that couldn't have been done before, either because people didn't feel that the risk was significant enough to ensure all the technology wasn't good enough to do it versus the other point you made earlier about improving the operational side. And I always make the dangerous comment about just improving that, but actually that's a really significant thing to be able to do to improve some of the operations. Can you, you can reduce costs, but you know, where, where does your appetite sit or your view of what the future offers? If you, if you can give a sort of balance or a percentage of one side versus the other. It's difficult to provide percentages because we really look for companies that do both of those things. 
I think we skew towards brand new opportunities, actually. Um, I think that that's just something that we find intellectually interesting and challenging. And, and, you know, again, as venture investors who are looking for, um, you know, sort of extraordinary companies, um, it's quite plausible to believe uh, in something which is brand new. At the same time, the industry is one where there is so much opportunity to uh, work on the, the inefficiency factor and the kind of customer service factor. You know, we most certainly do um, invest in companies that, that do traditional things, too. We do invest in companies that are somewhat deeper into the into the value chain. But if we go back to the portfolio, they're reasonably small proportion of, of the overall portfolio. If you stack it up against the kind of new and innovative kind of product concepts that we that we've backed. Um, I think the, the truth of the matter is that doing something new is typically more exciting. Right. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing that gets investors juices flowing. Brand new, like, exciting ideas are the kind of thing that folks can kind of coalesce around. Um, in truth, what we see is that when, when we're talking about better technology for the insurance industry, it generally puts companies into this SaaS category, which is a very well-known and established category of company and venture investment in, in our world. SaaS is, of course, software as a service. There are accepted and expected metrics for those companies as they go through their their kind of life, and you're valued against the, uh, to, in, based on how you measure up to them. And the problem with the insurance industry, I think, is that it makes it hard to achieve some of these generally accepted metrics. Um, you know, we all know the challenges of sales cycles in the insurance industry. We know the challenges around self service and the, the dependency risk that often comes with needing to work with consultants to implement your solution. And so it can be hard to get excited. We've got a couple of examples in our portfolio that really did get us excited. Um, one, our most recent investment, a company called Agent Sync, which provides compliance tools to carriers and MGAs. That Their product has been flying off the shelf. The reason for doing that most recent round, they're just keeping up with demand. They're, they really hit something that, that um, the insurance industry needs. And then Eigen, that is, um, that is providing a solution for document uh, AI, um, is also um, encountering this kind of fantastic pull from the industry that is kind of finally facing up to the fact that the, the future doesn't necessarily um, lie in, in paper. Well, it's not often you hear the words excited and compliance in the same sentence. Uh, but so well done, agents <laughs> think, for, 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 uh, for attracting your attention and getting, getting their products flying off the shelf. But it does kind of reinforce something I want to come back and ask you about in you know, my own view on this, which is, regulation is often the biggest driver of innovation and, and I guess linked to that people tend not to buy insurance unless they either have to or they've suffered a, a really big loss and therefore they realize what the potential is how do you sort of validate if you're looking at these companies that it's a great idea maybe you can talk about some examples in your portfolio as my former boss of mine used to say it's a great idea that should never happen you know, how do you filter those out for the ones that really are going to go somewhere one interesting example of a company that we've been working with for a long time is a company called Stable. Um, they uh, they do a very novel and exotic price insurance for the commodities industry and, and particularly um, the you know large food companies looking to hedge out and protect themselves from price volatility. And we went through 
a journey with them, which began um, generally addressing farmers in the UK as an appointed representative of Lloyd's, um, all the way through to setting up a collateralized insurer in Bermuda. And, you know, at every step of the way, the preeminent questions have really been very, very boring questions about tax and regulation and, you know, the underlying construction of these protection products. That just happens to be stuff that we find really interesting. As much as I think um, there are certain ideas that we can dismiss out of hand as being impossible from a regulatory or compliance perspective, I think that every good idea um, merits serious and significant consideration. And there are some pretty significant protection gaps that uh, deserve to be addressed. And so with a bit of creativity, we often find solutions. I still remember the first time that I met Richard Council from Stable and he came into the office. And I, for some reason, I don't know what it is about that day or maybe it's about Rich that, that stuck with me. Um, but it just, I knew in that first meeting that this was an investment that I wanted to do. Rich had an incredible ability to tell a story about the, the existence of this problem and was convincing in his, about his ability to solve that problem. And he was just someone that we wanted to work with. We had that feeling from the very beginning that, that was, it was an exciting opportunity. Also, I mean, Richard was a, really is a farmer himself. So I mean, that's the classic way that people start up companies is they've got a problem and they, they go out and they realize they can't find someone to solve it. So they go and build a company to solve it. I mean, there are not many farmers, I think, that have come into insurance and built up a technology company. So it's <laughs> good for him at doing that. Ruth, I want to come back to your point about women in, in, in industry and, and venture and founders generally. So we get through the sort of, the troubled story about why there aren't more before we have to wrap up and leave it on that. So the stats I've seen are a bit depressing. It actually suggests there are fewer, I didn't quite, I can't quite recall exactly what they're measuring, whether it was companies being founded or some measure of success, but fewer women making the, the headlines, that's the wrong word to use, but you know where I'm going, than there have been in the previous years. Can you just talk a little bit about that and just make sure I've got my facts right? And then it'd be good to understand what needs to change to improve that. As we do, we're kind of counting up the statistics from last year. It's January of 2022. We looked at 2021 and found that um, in terms of uh, female founded companies um, receiving venture capital, that was only 2% of the entire venture capital universe. That's quite an astounding statistic. Honestly, I think it's um, it's shocking and and it and it demonstrates significant backsliding since uh, the, the past couple of years where actually women had been making gains in, in terms of achieving VC backing. First of all, I, I just want to say that I don't speak for all women just because I'm a woman, obviously, and certainly can't explain, um, you know, why this is the case, although I do have some presumptions. Um, you know, one of the things that we saw generally in the, in the labor market was that the pandemic has had a disproportionately negative impact on women. Um, and so I think that, you know, we might be kind of able to broadly generalize some of this uh, venture explanation on that basis and certainly some of the backsliding. But, um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly disappointing to me because I think that, as you mentioned with Rich Council, you know, he, here's a farmer who's working on a problem that he sees um, as a farmer. And generally, when it comes to diversity and not just gender diversity, but all diversity in venture capital, when we when we miss people, when we miss large groups of people as founders, 
we also miss their communities and the problems that they address. This is why it's really a huge disservice to society when we continue to back the same types of founders. Um, you can only lay, I guess, so much blame with, with investors uh, for doing that. I think that there's also something about um, the ambiance and culture of entrepreneurship as we've defined it, which for whatever reasons is is not particularly attractive to certain type of, types of founders. And I also think that when you see statistics about the unlikelihood of being founded, um, you know, it's it's actually you take a, a quite calculated view of the risk of founding a company and decide, you know, maybe this just isn't for me. So I think that we need generally to um, to to fund um, more fantastic female entrepreneurs. Our um, portfolio that, that Matt and I run is more than 70 percent uh, represented by underrepresented entrepreneurs. So we know that this is eminently possible. Um, and I hope that more portfolios start to look like ours. So a couple of questions. So the first one is partly how you think about the companies you invest in, but maybe more generally what's happening out there. Quite a few investors, including Paul Graham from Y Combinator, which has been behind some big companies like Dropbox and uh, Airbnb, will only invest in companies that have got multiple founders in them. So it might be useful to understand your view on that. But when we sort of look at this problem about the female founders, is that the focus around the founder as CEO? How does that look if you say, okay, actually, there's a founding team there of two or three people, one of whom might be female? Does, does, it, does the picture look a little bit better? Yeah, it does respect? look slightly better. I believe, in, and, and actually, I don't have the stats in front of me. I'm sorry. I believe that with one female co-founder, the, uh, the percentage goes up to 20% from 2%. It's still not 50-50, right? It's still pretty insignificant. Um, and so I think the questions to ask are, why are so few women getting funded? And, you know, why are so few um, startups uh, being founded without a woman as uh, a member of their founding team? This topic uh, drives me drives me crazy. It's I think it I do blame in the investor community, actually, far more than I think others do. Um, and I think it starts with the fact that so many venture firms are basically comprised of a partnership that is identical. They're all exactly the same. And the folks that they want to back are pretty much exactly the same as them. And, and you know, my appeal, I guess, my, my ask of the insurance industry, who are LPs in these funds, is to, is to ask the hard questions of the firms that they're backing. Why is it that you don't have a woman on the investment team? Why is it that you don't have someone um, that doesn't look like you making investment decisions? And and direct your dollars accordingly. Um, it's, it's 2022. It's not acceptable. Um, and it's, it's laziness, frankly. Um, I benefit from working with not just Ruth, but um, several other women on our investment team. And... Uh, that is fantastic. And it is an enormous advantage for us because we're always able to consider things from multiple perspectives. Um, and she's a damn good investor as well. So, um, you know, I think it, it, it starts with LPs. GPs have to ask themselves hard questions as well. But it all flows through to then, you know, to the companies that are being backed, in my opinion. Thanks, Matt. And just for those, again, not familiar with venture capital term, uh, so LP would be limited partner uh so that would be a 
corporate investor. Just remind me what GP stands for. I should know, but I can't recall. That's that's a general partner. So that's the the the, the GP is the is the venture firm in in a sense. The 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 group of people that are making the investments. Got it. Thanks. And so just I want to keep on this thread a little bit because there's there's a lot here that's important. What do you feel is the impact of? Certainly, in my view, there seems to be far fewer accelerators, incubators, call them what you will, that are helping companies with those the important early stages of actually doing the product market fit. There's a bit of funding in there. Is that notwithstanding what you said, Matt, about the decision at the investment level? But it seems like if the pipeline isn't healthy and, and women aren't able to explore those ideas initially, then you've, you've still got the same problem. Is that part of what's happening? Is it harder now to to get the business off the ground as, as well as getting the funding later stage? Look, there's never been a better time to um, be a woman or a diverse founder in venture capital because people are very, very conscious of these issues. I'm going to give a quick shout out to the Anthemis and Barclays Female Innovators Lab. This is an example um, among quite a handful of initiatives, which is seeking to support female founders uh, at the earliest stages, at the idea generation stages, uh, when when they might be thinking about um, founding a company in the financial services space. And there are a number of other initiatives globally that are looking at doing that. Um, I think maybe just to leave this on a positive note, I'll come back to your previous question about, you know, what is your kind of view about uh, only funding teams with, you know, more than one person or, or this type of stuff. And I think what I would say about that is that in venture capital, you're looking for exceptions. You are looking for exceptional entrepreneurs who are going to have exceptional outcomes. Uh, it is very, very, very difficult to succeed um, as a venture-backed startup. And so by definition, it's really impossible to have hard, fast rules about, you know, whom you're backing. You can have hard, fast rules about the companies or the dynamics that you're not backing, you know, particularly toxic founding situations or addressable market topics or things like that. But in terms of like, I'll never back a solo founder or, you know, I only back women like that just doesn't make sense. You're just you're looking for outliers. So I would caution anyone who has um, an overrepresentation of a certain type of person in their portfolio to look for more outliers. Hi, this is Rebecca, the director of research and insight at Instech. I just wanted to drop in to let you know to watch out for an upcoming report focused on climate change measurement and regulation. We'll be hosting a digital live chat on the 24th of February to support the launch. And you can sign up to the event and reserve your copy of the report on our website, London. So, Matt, just want to come back to one of your uh, topics you want to talk about, which is why are there no full stack insurers in the UK just now? So what is perhaps you should just explain yeah. where, where they're going if they're not in the UK. And, and then why do you think that's happening? When this current wave of tech-driven innovation in insurance began, we, we started with the, the predominant model for innovation um, was the MGA model. And that's persisted and that serves a large number of companies really, really well. Um, over over quite a long period of time, um, we then I would say about three years ago, maybe 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 three or four years ago, um, started to see the emergence of these companies saying, actually, I don't want to be reliant upon a panel of insurance companies. I want to have my own insurance company. Um, 
it actually turns out they're still reliant on someone else. They're just called reinsurers instead. But they wanted to have control over as much of the value chain as they possibly could. And um, they went ahead and started um, incorporate, either incorporating new entities, uh, buying shell companies, um, or, um, or taking over existing insurance companies in their entirety. And this has proliferated in the US. And all of those companies that we were talking about earlier on that have listed are full stack carrier uh, businesses. Um, it's happened in Germany. It's happened in uh, Gibraltar. Um, it's happened, I think, even in France um, and various other countries around the world as well. And when I speak to InsurTech, we don't have any here. And when I talk to InsurTechs about what their plans are around establishing a carrier, the UK is always kind of there as an option, but it's never the one that they're actually veering towards. And I'm still struggling to understand a little bit why. Also, there are no domestic reinsurers domiciled in the UK, with the exception of Floodry and Poolry, which are, are partnerships. So I think it's bizarre as a, as a kind of major global insurance hub that we haven't managed to, to crack this nut. And I do believe that it's important to do so, actually. I, I, I do think that we need to figure out um, why it's not happening. And I think it's important for the ecosystem to have a handful of these companies here to kind of pave the way and show that it's, it's doable um, for the kind of next wave of companies that come forward. Um, so that's, yeah, my kind of Union Jack waving kind of why are we, why are we not, why are we not doing this? It's tempting to say Brexit for some of those. Zigo is full stack based in the UK, but they're actually, their capacity is in Gibraltar. So they, they don't, they don't make it to your list, do they? Because they're not going after the UK based capacity. I think in some cases, some of the startups that we've spoken to have been afraid of approaching the PRA because they, they, they're a bit worried about being told no. Uh, there are some who are being wooed by um, what they perceive to be kind of more relaxed regulatory environments in other countries. I believe that the PRA established a, a new insurance company startup unit um, and, and kind of released some guidance on, on how um, organizations can, can start that process. Um, maybe it's a, regular, a kind of capital requirements question. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We're still searching. Well, Matt, we've got you on, on stage. Uh, it looks like we're going to be going back to live events in March talking about moving from MGAs to full stack. So we'll definitely have a chance to develop this more in front of what I suspect is going to be another healthy live audience of 200 people or so. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely to be continued. Uh, we're getting close to running out of time because I know you've got real jobs to go back to other than just talking to me. But I did want to touch on one area that, that I know you're active in with uh, a couple of companies, certainly Demex and Kettle, which is related to climate risk. Now, I think of climate risk as a risk today. And then there's also what we categorize as climate change risk related, but slightly different. I don't know who wants to jump in on this one, but my personal view on this is this is going to be a massive driver of opportunities for data and analytics, partly because it's being increasingly driven by regulation as well as investor, as well as other stakeholder sentiment. Can one of you give a view on the kind of anthemous view on this? We agree with you that this is an increasingly uh, important matter, um, not only for the insurance industry, but also for the planet. Um, as you'll know, the insurance industry was was one of the very first to pay attention to climate change. Um, and, you know, largely because of the massive impact that it that it has on uh, on uh, claims. Um, but I think that we are very interested in the way that um Businesses are going to react and homeowners are going to react uh, 
and car owners and all kinds of owners are going to react to increased volatility. Um, we're very interested in in that volatility at the cat level, but also at the non-cat level. So what happens when there's just it's way colder than it ever was before, as we saw with the polar vortex in Texas last year, which has had knock on impacts on the supply chain, you know, particularly the U.S. supply chain um, for for months and months since. Um, so we, you know, are also quite circumspect about these projects. They're very hard um, to execute on. It certainly is a data and analytics question. There are a lot of great teams working on um, sort of predictive modeling and deeply understanding uh, data related to increased climate volatility and risk. Um, we think that the teams that will succeed really have a special sauce of being able to, you know, create fantastic products that are comprehensible to uh, to people and businesses that help them to manage this volatility um, and that, you know, can not only assess the risk accurately, but also transfer the risk. Uh, and so we have backed a few awesome players in this space and, and certainly we'll continue to look at it. Well, I'm going to call out uh, the 11FS podcast and the episode you did with Nigel Walsh recently, Ruth, where you went into quite a lot of detail about what you're doing with Kettle and Demex. We haven't got enough time to go into those today, but recommend that podcast anyway and a very useful, insightful description there. So thank you for that. And, and then, Matt, one thing we haven't covered on your list of topics you want to talk about was embedded insurance. So over to you. What do you want to tell us about that? I think it's interesting that we're now seeing kind of different flavors of embedded. Um, and I, I'm far away from having kind of my own framework for thinking about this, but there are a few companies in our portfolio that I think represent, yeah, these, these kind of different angles on embedded. So for example, um, you know, the team at Flock with their fleet insurance product, if you want to get the best out of that, if you want to, um, you know, really, yeah, maximize what you, the value that you get from that product. You want to be using, um, telematics. You want to be you, connecting your existing telematics, uh, product with the flock insurance product. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got, um, for example, we have another company in the portfolio called LocoNav, which is a, um, uh, in emerging markets, a telematics proposition. Um, and they have embedded, um, insurance in there. And it's a, it's a really convenient, nice to have. Um, for, for customers, um, that are using their, their products. And then in the middle, you've got the, and maybe it's not in the middle, maybe it's somewhere else entirely. You've got companies like Hokodo that are using, um, insurance in a really smart way. They're embedding that into their buy now, pay later, um, solution. And it makes it, and it's transformational in that it's fundamentally changing the nature of the risk in, in their business that them as an investment proposition. And um, and the book that they're building is very different because of that kind of embedded products in there in their alongside lending. When we talked about embedded in the past, it was about you know, tick a box and you get some insurance. But now I think we're really kind of beginning to move into and see some really smart examples of embedded, which I think is great. And it's a natural kind of maturity of this uh, of this opportunity. Yeah. And I think to Ruth's point earlier about the, the evolution of technology and what that enables, that's certainly been driven by the new technology coming out. Um, we did a report back earlier this year, which had a number of your companies and ones you mentioned in that as well. What would be the one thing you want people to take away from this? So if they go away and someone says, what do you take away from the Antimus podcast? What do you want them to remember? I want people to know that we believe in this space and that, you know, this is still early innings. 
that the markets have been frothy and that will turn people off a little bit. But one of the awesome things that comes out of frothy markets um, uh, is lots of experimentation and lots of projects. And, you know, when um, we start to become a little bit more uh, discerning, we are able to see that there are actually huge impactful companies that are built on the basis of this experimentation. Great. It's like the best English beer, not frothy, a bit flat, but actually got the best flavor, perhaps. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> uh, Matt, over to you. I'm going to just build on that. I think if you are an entrepreneur, um, an insurance exec or an investor, if you're thinking about investing, advising or partnering with companies in this space, um, please get in touch. You can reach Ruth and I directly at insurance at anthemist.com. That comes straight to the two of us. Um, we'd love to talk to, and we do talk to anyone that shares our interest and enthusiasm for what's going on in this space. Thank you both very much. It was really very, very helpful. We crammed an awful lot in there. Thank you very much for having us. Now, one of the pleasures of recording these podcasts is I actually get to listen to the discussions four times in the preparation, when we record, when we do the edits, and then the final check. But it does take that amount of time to absorb all the information. So if you didn't get all of this first time around, then you may want to download that transcript from the website. And you can also find all our reports there, events, articles, newsletters, company profiles, and a lot more, www.instec.london. And don't forget, if you're feeling lost and confused amongst all that's going on, we might just be able to help. Matthew Grant on LinkedIn or any of us, hello, at instec.london. Thank you.